This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Deboat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. Today on the program, we'll talk about arts and the economy. A little later in the program, the arts part, Bridget Jai Paul Valenza will bring us Maria Ta from Ujima Theater Company. That's looking at the way that activism and arts sometimes walk hand in hand into the community and can actually help out in a big way. But first, let's dig deeper into the economy and specifically into unemployment and a little bit later in the program, specifically into job training. One of the great things I think about WBFO is our range of programs. Each night at 630, for example, Marketplace breaks down business issues, and they do it really in probably the most understandable way, I think, of any business program. About a week back, they had a segment on Juneteenth about the economic emancipation of black Americans. Uh, It was riveting. I think when I heard it, I said it has to be a part of this program. So we're going to give that a little listen and uh, talk a little bit about some of the numbers that they raised during that report. According to a recent study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, in 2019, for every dollar of wealth belonging to a white American, every dollar equals 17 cents for black Americans. Why does the gap exist nearly 160 years after slavery? Derek Hamilton is a professor of economics and urban policy. He's also the founding director of the Institute on Race and Power and Political Economy at the New School. He studied this issue. He spoke about it on that recent issue of Marketplace with D.C. correspondent Kimberly Adams, the host of Marketplace Make Me Smart. Thank you. Glad to be here. What was the state of black wealth in the United States at the end of slavery? Well, it was not zero, but the reality was that on mass, black people served as a capital asset for a white landowning plantation class. But there were some emancipated black individuals that did have some wealth. So it certainly wasn't zero, but it was grossly unequal. In the decades immediately after slavery, what was the experience like for black people trying to build wealth? What sorts of structural and and legal issues did they run into? Well, we had an evolution from a chattel slavery system to a sharecropping system, a system in which As a result of not being owners of land, black people were tenants of landowners. Despite political obstacles, despite literal violence, a surprising amount of agricultural land, farmland, had been accumulated since emancipation up to probably about the height around 1910 or so. 
So can you talk a little bit about, you know, at the beginning, as well as what this era that you're talking about around 1910, what sorts of legal and structural obstacles were there to black people trying to build wealth? Well, part of the New Deal, part of the reaction to uh, some of the conditions that were going on as a result of the Depression led to the United States Department of Agriculture trying to engage and promote farm ownership in a way to uh, facilitate economic security for the American people. So although the legislation didn't say that black people would be excluded, the implementation and management of these programs in a local Jim Crow context was done in a way that was very exclusionary and actually predatory. So for example, there would be delays in when a loan might be approved. The recipient, if they were black, would received the loan after the harvest had already uh, taken place. They weren't able to generate crops in order to go to market and generate resources, and they were vulnerable. And then we also know the history of just outright terror that was taking place. One famous incident is the Tulsa race riots, but well beyond Tulsa, there was a great deal of just uh, violence and uh, trying to force people to leave that actually own land. And then that land became available for white people. What's the legacy of not only the hundreds of years of enslavement, but then also these barriers after the institution ended? The legacy is a country that devalued a people based on their identity. Whenever we think about political economy, it's not novel if we talk about an economy or if we talk about policy and politics. But what has been problematic in American history is that black people themselves, that identity, when it came to transaction, if they engage with a white person, the identity itself put them at a disadvantage. And the reason it put them at a disadvantage, they have never had equal protection under the law, the way a white person has. Fast forward to the modern era. There are estimates that even if wealth accumulation was equal between black Americans and white Americans over the last 160 years since slavery, it still wouldn't close the racial wealth gap. That neighbor study that I mentioned earlier estimated that even given equal conditions, it would still take 200 more years for the black and white wealth gap to converge. Why are black Americans still so far behind? Well, the way that wealth is generated is it takes capital to generate additional capital. And what's more, capital grows in an exponential way. So if there's a gap to begin with, if you do nothing, a population will never catch up. But there's a silver lining in this story. When we think about wealth throughout American history, even for white people, it wasn't as if an asset-based white middle class simply emerged. It was public policy that helped a white middle class to emerge. Policies like the GI Bill or a debt-free college education So the good news is that although this gap is dramatic and large, it can be redressed. We can change that history, that sordid history, and make sure that everybody has the financial wherewithal to really have the sovereignty that wealth brings. 
That's Professor Derek Hamilton, professor of economics at the New School, speaking with Kimberly Adams. She's the co-host of Marketplace's Make Me Smart podcast. She's also Marketplace's Washington, D.C. correspondent. Let's move now from a national perspective to a local one. Here's some interesting numbers about Buffalo. 35% of African-Americans live below the poverty line. The average household income for black residents, this is all according to a recent study at UB looking at the lack of progress over the past 30 years. Average household income for black residents increased only slightly during that time to 42000 Home ownership among African-Americans dropped to 32%. And perhaps the number that's most relevant now for our next guest, unemployment in the black community remains in the double-digit figures at 11%. Let's bring in Stephen Tucker now, president and CEO of the Northland Workforce Training Center. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. I want to eventually get into what Northland does and talk about solutions. But let's just first, I think, look at the problem. What do you see in a day-to-day sort of scenario? What kind of problems do Buffalo's black youth have being employed? Well, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges that um, black youth have today in Buffalo with obtaining and accessing employment opportunities is um, poor or low quality education. Um, Many um, African-American students, uh, people of color, start off from behind um, because research shows that if you're not reading on grade level by third grade, um, you may never catch up. So in my opinion, it really starts with um, poor education as well as a lack of awareness around existing opportunities in West New York as it comes to or as it relates to um, careers, professions, occupations um, that um, individuals can pursue once they um, become adults. So it's several factors, but in my opinion, those are two of the biggest challenges so far. And I think that that probably raises two myths. One about uh, the kind of jobs we have. Myth number one, manufacturing is dead. Ever since the steel plant, we don't have manufacturing here. You would argue that instead we have not the steel plant, but advanced manufacturing. That is absolutely right. And in addition to advanced manufacturing, we also have an emerging clean energy technology sector emerging in western New York. Um, One of the reasons why Northland was created was to address the skills gap in the advanced manufacturing sector. As a region in western New York, we are projecting to need to fill about 20,000 job openings in the next five to ten years in the advanced manufacturing and clean energy sectors, mainly due to retirements. Both of those sectors have an aging workforce and a non-existent pipeline. Young people are either not aware of, interested in, or have the technical skills necessary to to fill those positions. And in addition to a high number of positions, um, these positions pay average salaries for the entire sector, 85000 for production jobs, around 50000 but they also lead to pathways to the middle class. That kind of brings me to myth number two. Education doesn't matter. If my job is going to be as a college professor, sure, I've got to have that that fundamental ground um, foundation of education. But if I'm just going to be a welder 
it doesn't matter. Talk more again about advanced manufacturing and therefore the skills they require because there's got to be a skills gap. It's interesting that you picked uh, welder as the occupation to discuss. Oh, I did that one on purpose. <laughs> so that's actually one of the training programs that we offer at Northland. Yeah. And uh, welding is a highly technically um, skilled occupation because when you think about advanced manufacturing, even in welding, um, you're fabricating mission-critical, life-saving components, either going in medical devices, aerospace applications, automobiles. So you need individuals who are technically skilled um, to manufacture these products, and we have an abundance of advanced manufacturing jobs. I mentioned 20,000 in the next 5 to 10 years. We currently have 3,000 job openings right now that go on field every day uh, for welders, for machinists, CNC machining, for mechatronics technicians, for electricians. So there is a myth that education is not important. It's critically important. Mm -hmm. It's really the foundation that leads you to um, generating higher incomes as an adult. That brings me then to Northland, what they are, what they do, where they are. Um, who takes your classes? Give me the overview. The overview, uh, Northland Workforce Training Center, we were the, or we are the signature workforce initiative under the Buffalo Billion. I mentioned 20,000 advanced manufacturing job openings in the next uh, 10 years. We are an industry-driven, employment-focused training center in East Buffalo, focused on training and preparing local residents for careers in advanced manufacturing and clean energy. We are an extension campus for SUNY Erie Community College, as well as Alfred State College, and we offer college certificates and degrees right in East Buffalo. Um, since opening in 2018, we've enrolled more than 700 students. Our completion rate is around 65%, which is double the national average and three times the local average. Um, we're placing 88% of our graduates in jobs with our manufacturing um, employers, earning an, an entry-level starting salary of about $40,000 a year. Year, which has an economic impact of around um, $5.9 million. But more importantly, now these graduates have a skill set that can lead them to generate higher incomes uh, once they get experience. Talk to me about the curriculum. Does it do some of that bedrock foundational stuff, catching people up on, say, literacy, for example? Or does it just say, here is what you need to know to be an advanced manufacturing welder? It's a combination of both. And um, one of the, the educational pedagogies of the Northern Workforce Training Center, we try to embed the delivery of the general education requirements into the technical training. Mm. So instead of taking... So it's not, here's a reading class, here's a welding correct. class. Correct. It's a class that is doing both, both of them. It's, okay. apl it's applied learning. Gotcha. Um, instead of learning calculus or math or or English, you're learning technical writing. You're learning um, understanding technical instructions. Uh, you're learning math for machining, math for welders. Uh, so it's more applied. And um, students spend 20% of their time in the classroom learning the theory and 80% applying what they learn instead of 80% in general education classes and 20% in hands-on. What's your placement rate? Right now, our placement rate is um, 88%, and we're super excited and proud of that. Many of our graduates have multiple jobs offers before they graduate. Uh, we partner with outstanding organizations, one in particular, the Buffalo Niagara Manufacturing Alliance. They are an industry association representing the manufacturing sector. Uh, they consist of around 100 
250 to 200 small, medium, and large size manufacturing firms. They work with us to not only align our curriculum with what their training needs are, but to hire our students. So uh, we have a very, very successful placement rate. I, I pretty much say that if you go through our training program, you're almost guaranteed to our placement. How does someone access your services? Is it, is it a direct kind of transfer? I graduate high school, they can refer me to Northland, or do you have to do what I would imagine in absence of that is a huge amount of, of outreach? We do a huge amount of outreach. We have a very aggressive outreach and communication strategy. And one of the challenges that we talked about earlier was a lack of awareness. Um, we have a ground attack and an air attack, mm. very similar to, to, to football. Our ground attack, we have outreach and recruiting specialists. They go out to churches, to schools, to community centers. West New York has a ton of festivals. We're at every festival. Number one, raising awareness around these careers. People drive past Tesla. They drive past Jerome they drive past these great companies that are making transformative products, and they have no idea. They have no idea that medical devices are being created in the east side of Buffalo. They have no idea that Moog and East Aurora, they're making space and defense products, and they offer outstanding careers. Uh, so, number one, we raise awareness around these careers, and then if um, individuals are interested, we um, have them pursue their career opportunities at Northland Workforce Training Center. Does it bother you that you have to address some of the fundamental bedrock basic education issues or to ask the question another way and i don't mean to be rude here uh, but to ask it another way does the public school system prepare people enough should they be doing more should you essentially be out of a job what i will say is this um if an individual has a high school diploma the expectation should be that they are reading on grade level. They understand numeracy, literacy. They have the basic foundation skills that um, align with having a high school diploma. Um, we used to deliver a, a test of adult basic education um, just to assess the literacy and numeracy of students because this is college. Yeah. We wanted to make sure that they had the academic background and rigor to be able to complete college. And when we were delivering the TAPE test, um, unfortunately, only 30 percent of students could demonstrate 10th grade literacy and numeracy at the time of taking that test, despite having a high school diploma. And that's not um, a Buffalo Public School um, shortcoming assessment. It's just a, 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 an assessment of all of the educational institutions um, in Western New York because we get our students from all five counties. So when you're attracting students from all five counties and only 30 percent demonstrate 10th grade literacy and numeracy, that's a challenge. Okay. If I was a parent or if I was a student and I had a high school diploma, I would expect to at least uh, meet that, that level of literacy and numeracy. And is that when you said, gee, Northland has to add some of this education into their curriculum? Well, th that was always the plan, right? Um, Northland Northland was built off of best practices from across the country, and I didn't come up with the strategy or the okay. idea. I feel like I'm the race car driver that's now responsible for the million-dollar um, or billion-dollar aircraft or, or, or race car that was created by outstanding engineers. Yeah. Okay. This, this, this business plan was actually under development since 2011. But to make a long story short, we always intended to embed intense wraparound services, intense... Um, remediation services to bring people up. 
with technical training, which leads to our high completion rates. Uh, we provide assistance with transportation, mental health, substance abuse, housing, food. We have an emergency fund where if um, an individual um, is completing the training and they run into an emergency with their house or their car, they, we give them a $500 grant. All of those strategies were developed by the um, founders of Northland Workforce Training Center to embed those intense wraparound services because we know that they work with the delivery of the technical training. Is the lack of this kind of training, is the need for your center connected directly to race? You mentioned that it's more than Buffalo, that it's, that it's a couple of counties. Mm-hmm. But I also point back to the number that I used earlier in the program. Unemployment in the black community in Buffalo is at 11%. Is there a racial component here? Is it proper to even put it in that context? I think it's an access component. Um, oftentimes, um, these opportunities are not accessible by public transportation um, or may not be welcoming for diverse populations. Um, the city worked with the state to intentionally um, identify the Northland Beltline Corridor as a place for this investment. In your opening, you mentioned that the average household incomes um, in Western New York mm-hmm. for African Americans was 42000 Right. On the east side of Buffalo, it's less than that. It's mm-hmm. around 25000 per household. Oh, wow. And 98% of residents in East Buffalo are people of color. So the disparities are even greater in East Buffalo. So the city worked with the state to intentionally make an investment of $110 million into the east side of Buffalo uh, to not only provide the training, but also hopefully attract businesses from outside of the region into east Buffalo to create jobs. That's interesting. I think when we hear the word disparities, automatically it's been connected to health. Mm -hmm. But you would argue, as I think the uh, professor at the start of the program, Derek Hamilton, did, that there is an economic disparity. There is a, a lack of incentive for participation in the economy. There's, I wouldn't say a lack of an incentive. I would say um, a lack of opportunity. Okay. Um, And those disparities are created by those opportunities by having limited access to quality education, because it starts there, as well as with access to opportunities. Um, Some of the jobs that we are, that I mentioned earlier, right? Um, I mentioned, you know, Moog. They're a great company. They're in East Aurora. Mm -hmm. That's, you know... 20, 30 minutes away, you have to have reliable transportation. Um, So one of the things that we try to do at Northland is is to address those outages, address those gaps, um, prepare students for the technical training, but provide them with that support to take advantage of those opportunities that's available in Western New York. There is... um Manufacturing in the city of Buffalo. And I know that, that people probably don't think of manufacturing being here at all. No, it's everywhere. But there are, yeah, there are companies out there that you could also place someone without transportation with. Correct. Uh, one of the uh, companies we work closely with, Eastman Machine, right. they're in downtown Buffalo. Oldest manufacturer in the city. And a great manufacturer, and they actually hire several of our graduates, as well as send some of their incumbent workers to Northland to get upskilled. Another company we work with, Harwood, I mean, Harmac. That's where I was headed. I was going to ask you about that. Yes, Harmac is outstanding. They hire several of our graduates. We actually have an apprenticeship program uh, with Harmac, and they are manufacturing medical devices that's saving people's lives in the city of Buffalo that nobody knows about. Harmac is a heck of a story, because not only have they done immense amounts of outreach to 
the black and the immigrant community. But they also provide some of the things you referred to earlier as wraparound services. Yes. They are not just a place where you go and get your job and get your paycheck. They do some of that stuff, too. I think one of the bigger things that they do as well um, is create an organizational culture where people feel valued and welcome. Um, it's one thing to attract a, a diverse candidate. It's another thing for that candidate to feel valued, to feel welcomed, to advance in their careers within that organization, to um, obtain a leadership role within that organization. So it's more than just opportunity. We also have to make sure we are creating environments um, that's going to support diversity. In our closing minutes here, I want to broaden the discussion beyond Northland. Um, and look at obviously the, the the premise for this program that which from it uh, which it springs is May fourteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Buffalo need beyond just the job training stuff that you've addressed? Does May fourteenth point to something that we really still need? I think so. And um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I was recruited to. Buffalo to lead Northland Workforce Training Center. And when I was doing my research before I came, um, the research stated that Buffalo was the sixth highest segregated city in the country, um, that Buffalo had a racist undertone. Um, there's a, an index called the Isolation Index um, in West New York that states that um, people who live in certain communities won't interact with people who don't look like them. Right. In their day to day activities. And I believe because of this segregation and this isolation, it allows stereotypes to um, to 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 be sustainable, as well as create an environment where hate can fester and grow. So I think we need to have more interactions with one another, with diverse candidates. Um, One of the great ways to do that is in schools and in the workplace, to get to know people who don't look like you so that we can address some of those stereotypes and some of those implicit biases, because they are real and they are out there. And and until we start having those courageous conversations, this environment is always going to exist. By no means am I suggesting, oh, because the problem is elsewhere. There is no problem here. But compare us to Cincinnati, just for a reference point. It's hard to to, to do because, um, I mean, (laughs) nobody comes out and says I'm a racist. Right. Right. Uh, But we all know that racism exists everywhere. Right. Um, I think here in Buffalo, I do see the segregation um, more than I did see it in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. But I also have seen that we are a city of good neighbors, right? Uh, We support one another. Um, I just think that we need to be intentional in our interactions and have those courageous conversations, right, where people can feel comfortable asking those tough questions or, or discussing those tough issues without feeling like I'm going to be labeled as a racist or something like that. So not only should there be more interaction, but... I should be free as a white man to ask you questions about this issue. I think so, especially if we we have a relationship, right? Um, I have several um, friends who are white, male, female, and we, we, you know, as we developed our relationships, we felt more comfortable to have those conversations. In the bar or in the dining room over a beer. Exactly, exactly. What does that look like? Um, <laughs> what kind of things do do you get asked? Wow. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there's and, and uh, you don't have to out anyone. Don't don't I, put a I, name I'm to gonna, it. I'm not going to out anyone. Don't but, put uh, a name to it. But at, what? at Northland, uh, we have around thirty 
staff members that work directly for Northland. We have around 30 or so indirect um, faculty and staff that work for the education departments. Primarily, the diversity of the staff at Northland is diverse. Sure. The diversity with the partners is not diverse, right? So we had to be intentional in increasing our interactions. We have partner meetings every semester where we we require that the individuals from other institutions sit with people who don't look like them race-wise or gender-wise mm-hmm. work in the same company just to develop that relationship just so that people can feel more comfortable. We've had situations where people didn't necessarily feel comfortable talking to people that didn't look like them, but as we began to increase those interactions, uh, we've been able to address those. Is it just the discomfort or is there a theme there? Is there one question or one topic that always comes up? Not not really one question or one topic. I, I really just think it's getting to know one another. Discomfort or it's, unfamiliarity. It's maybe. unfamiliarity. You know, um, at Northland, our students, 58 percent are people of color, 8 um, percent are female, which are both high numbers for advanced manufacturing. The majority of our instructors are, are white male. Um, and we have career coaches that work with instructors, that work with students to mitigate any challenges. And we had the bridge some of those gaps. There's also, in addition to um, the, the, the the racial component, there's generational gaps as well. Mm-hmm. You have older people, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, right, working with um, younger folks, Gen Zers, millennials, right? Mm-hmm. So there's generational um, challenges. There are racial challenges. There are gender challenges, right? So addressing um, and being intentional around, and, and making setting up a space where people can feel comfortable, right? I think that's critical. What's next? Uh, Is there a new curriculum? Is there a Northland Training Center 3.0 coming down? (laughs) So um, one of the things that we want to do next, uh, we've really done a great job ramping up our training around um, advanced manufacturing. Um, I mentioned earlier that clean energy was an emerging theme bubbling up in East Buffalo, uh, battery storage, EV charging stations. Um, so ramping up our training around clean energy, but also replicating and expanding the Northland model into the southern tier. We're a part of the Build Back Better Regional Challenge, which will attract $50 million to West New York. And if the region is awarded this funding, it would allow us to replicate the Northland model of intense wraparound services into the southern tier with Jamestown Community College. Cummins Engine, a lot of manufacturers yes. down there, the as old well furniture as, companies. Uh, into Niagara County with um, NCCC. Sure. All right. Final question is always, I think, the easiest, but it also helps sort of frame the entire premise of this program. Are you optimistic? Do you have hope? I always have hope. I'm very optimistic, and um, I look at challenges as opportunities, opportunities to do something different and to um, have an impact and and to make our community um, and our societies better. So I am always very optimistic. How do people get in touch? Um, To get in touch with us, visit our website at www.northland, which is N-O-R-T-H-L-A-N-D-W-T-C.org. Or give us a call at 436-3229. 436-3229. Stephen, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Stephen Tucker, President and CEO of the Northland Workforce Training Center. Coming up next, from the economy, we go to the arts. Maria Ta is standing by from Ujima Theater Company. Bridget Jai Paul Valenza will be with her in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to WNED.org slash vehicles. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If our water could talk. Erie County Fair. Two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS now available on YouTube. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. I'm host Bridget J. Paul Valenza. Today we're speaking with Maria Ta from Ujima Theater. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bridget. Happy to be here. Um, Ujima is a multi-ethnic, multicultural professional theater. That's what it says on the website, um, whose primary person purpose is preservation, perpetuation, and performance of African-American theater. Tell me about that mission. So our mission is based around the the actual name of the theater company, Ujima, which for folks who don't know is a Swahili word that means collective work and responsibility. Uh, Lorna Seahill, our founder, based the theater company around the idea uh, and the tenant of this community of bringing people together from all backgrounds, all races, um, all identities to to work, to play, to vision, to dream. Uh, and that is the driving force that breathes life into the work that you see on stage, into the work that we do in the community. Um, it is the work that lifts up the voices and the stories that people often don't hear, especially when we're talking about American theater, about traditional American theater. Um, we look for stories that are important to the communities that we work with, uh, which is what you'll, you'll largely see when you come see our work. It has been a difficult time. It has been, I mean, difficult really would be an under an understatement. How how are you doing with everything that's been going on? Yeah, I'd say for um, for the most part, I am I'm doing okay. Uh, I have often been a container for many people for a lot of things. I find solace in doing that in making space in being a provider and that's how I heal and navigate through trauma um, the first few weeks were difficult mm -hmm. I'm sure for, for many people um, 
I struggled with the notion of being numb, of whether or not to lean in or lean out or do no leaning at all, mm-hmm. for that matter, um, and have tried to navigate in the last few weeks how best to move forward with intention, with purpose. It's tiring. Yeah. <laughs> this work is, is is tiring. I mean, I think sometimes we negate the mm-hmm. emotional toll that it takes um, and simply the energy that it takes to simply exist in a space. Um, And that's not even talking about, you know, sort of perpetuating in that space or Mm -hmm. even closing up and being tiny in a space, but just existing. Um, As a theater company, I know that you guys are very active in the community. Um, So tell me about some of the programs that you have, some of the work that you do uh, in terms of being in the community and and how that plays a role in shaping the theater. Sure. So the company itself operates as a professional theater company. We produce a season of shows. Um, Our last season this year has been the first full season in about seven years that we've been able to to come in. We've we've moved a couple of spots. Um, So having to settle and then the pandemic happening... And everything in between losing our our founder and artistic director in that period of time as well and transitioning the company from that. Um, We have been able to lean into the mission that we talked about earlier, and there has been no lapse in the work that we've done. Had you not known what was going on in the company, uh, you would have never known that anything had changed. And I think that was a huge tenant of not only strength, but of the passion that so many people who call themselves Ujima's family, the the people who make it happen, that is uh, a tenant that they carry with them and that breathes life into into the work that we, we currently do. So this past season, we've been able to create a couple of different and new initiatives that speak to the, the work that Ujima has always done. Um, one of my favorite ones this year was being able to uh, launch the inaugural Lorna C. Hill Speaking Contest with uh, Buffalo Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hosted the finalists at the Lorna C. Hill Theater, um, our home uh, in the former public school 77. And that is very similar to the August Wilson monologues for folks who are familiar with that program. And it was in a time where students were just coming back into school in person, um, just trying to figure out how to survive in this new world that they were in and being able to focus in on something that led them to a goal. Uh, They selected a monologue that they worked on. It came from a black canon. So it was either prose or poetry or a monologue from a theatrical piece and were able to perform in front of their peers and their teachers and I have to say I was completely blown away. <laughs> These kids are talented and when they have 
a really strong conviction for what they want to do and what they want to say, I not only heard the words that they performed, which were not their own, but I heard what it is they got from those works, from being able to work through that artistic practice. Um, and we continue on the relationship beyond that. So the, the winners of the competition actually come into the company in the fall to be our interns, and they'll be paid interns through through the district. Um, so we're really excited about that. That's going to be an annual uh, program that we're going to run every year. How important is it when you're talking to or about youth to have them be involved in this process, in the process of the arts and using the arts um, as, a, as a mean, as a, as a tool? Talk, can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, young people are what I love. I love hanging around young people. I love being around young people. Uh, It is a major component of Ujima. Uh, One of the last missions, if you were, that Lorna left with us is to teach the children. And I still think about that every day. Every day I go into work, uh, she asked us to teach the children. And for us, um, that comes in a multitude of ways, uh, not only in just the programs, but we encourage our company, um, our actors, if you need help with your children, if you can't find a babysitter, and that means you won't be at rehearsal, you're bringing your kid to rehearsal. (laughs) Uh, We are a family through and through, so we will make sure that your kid is able to do their homework while you're rehearsing uh, so that there isn't an, an obstacle in the way to doing art. And we teach that at a very young age. Um, we teach them that art is a, a way to communicate, a way to speak to one another, a way to tell stories in ways that you don't even fully understand don't know how to say, um, lean into the artistic practice and see what comes out. Now, how have the conversations been with your actors, your staff, with the company since the 14th? Yeah, this is an interesting question because I think I think folks would be surprised by my answer in that... When you are a, a black-led organization, a black institution, a black historic institution, things don't necessarily change. Those conversations don't shift in the way people think. We sit with the trauma and we sit with the, the immediate action of making sure everyone's okay, checking in on one another. But it doesn't change our work, and it never has, and it never will, because our work has constantly and consistently talked about exactly what had happened on the 14th. So for us, it was how do we continue doing what we do? How do we continue making space? How do we continue bringing light and bringing the conversations to the people who need to have it most? How do we create healing spaces for everyone. Uh, Something that will stick with me is after the event on the 14th, I had to make a decision whether or not to 
cut our youth program that was scheduled for uh, the immediate week after, whether or not we should continue holding that program. And I was adamant that no matter if it was one kid or 20, we were going to keep the theater open for whoever needs to come. And I didn't think it was that impactful. It was just what the company has always done. When things got bad out there and you were a company member, you went to the theater. So I wanted to maintain that tradition. And one of the students said, Miss Maria, I'm surprised you still had the program. And I said, it's important. It's important for you guys to be able to be with one another. This is your community. If you wanted to come and be in community, you have it. And it was my responsibility to make sure that that space existed for you. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm host Bridget I. Paul Valenza. Today we are with Maria Ta from Ijima Theater. Let's talk about racism. <laughs> Actors in general face struggles for parts, for um, getting to auditions, for paying rent mm -hmm. and living life. Um, but it's different for an actor of color. It's different for a black actor, for a brown actor. Um, tell me why. Theater is funny. <laughs> it is, it's been co-opted to be a guarded space when its original origin is around storytelling, oral history, the way we share our history, our people's history from one generation to the next. And somehow we've made it into a world where if you didn't go to a conservatory or you didn't have technical training, you weren't considered a professional, you do community theater, you're not that good. It doesn't matter how talented you are or what skills and knowledge you've gained along the way. If you didn't have the credentials, people wouldn't even see you. And that struggle is what permeates the artistic pool of particularly black and brown performers. When you think about how do we train our people in a practice that is largely lauded over them, that you are preparing them for roles that aren't created for them, for their stories, how do you marry that with, well, if I teach you liberatory theater practices, how do you get into auditions? How do you provide that as a credential? The difficulty in that is sometimes we have to swallow it in order to give them the technical skills that they need to get into the door. But then the second obstacle is, where are the opportunities for black and brown performers? You see black and brown performers get into roles that are quote-unquote traditionally for white folks and... People get up in arms. And Twitter has a canary. You can't. You can't have a. You can't have a black Cinderella. You can't. You can't tell that story. And then, as an actor who has worked so hard to get there, how do you marry that 
with getting up on stage and doing your job and performing to the best of your abilities. So it's not just a struggle of technical skill for black and brown actors and performers. It's a job of my identity. How do I strip myself of that in order to do the job? Do I want to? That is a traumatic thing to have to do for some folks. And pursuing something that was your passion in a field that wasn't created for you, has been co-opted in a way that wasn't created for you, is extremely daunting and exhausting. It's tiring. It takes a lot out of people, especially if they don't have a community to hold them through it. It's it's a good thing Ajima is there. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Uchiba had put on a play called Free Fred Brown. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Free Fred Brown. Uh, This is my entry into Ujima, uh, my entry into professional theater in that sense. Uh, Free Fred Brown is a devised original work of Ujima. It's copyrighted. I I, uh, submitted the copyright application myself. (laughs) (laughs) It was created over the course of a two-year period where um, the company at the time did not have a theatrical home. We didn't have a performance space. Uh, we were out of our, uh, our our home at 545 Elmwood and had not yet moved into our new location that we're at now. So the decision was, well, we have to keep working. What do we do? Um, so we gathered and we figured we'll do a project about our community, what's going on in our community. And over the course of two years, the company had held storytelling circles with the community members, specifically around the topic of climate justice and climate impacts of community members who are largely kept outside of those conversations, namely those who are in black and brown communities, the communities that we see here, the folks that are standing in line at the heap office in the wintertime, uh-huh. have them tell the story. Um, and Free Fried Brown has actually been a part of the Ujima canon in the company since the 1980s. It was a skeleton of a play, and we've added additional stories based off of that story gathering process. Uh, rehearsed it, just played around with people's stories and uh, used actors who were comfortable with sharing folks' stories in trying to figure out, okay, how do we create a script? So once a script was finalized, um, I use that term very loosely because it was changing all the time. Uh, once it was finalized, we, we performed the first ever performance of Free Fred Brown at the Paul Robeson Theater. Uh, that was back in 2018. And the story is the story of a man who is arrested for theft of services for turning on the gas in his home to keep his family warm. And that's the main tenant of the story. But what you learn throughout the play is that there's an entire community around this one family that either helps, aids, um, or if they are in the form of the utility company, tries to undermine or overpower this family. And it is the story of how a community comes together, how it struggles, how it has to care for one another in a multifaceted manner. It isn't just about gas. It's about arts programming. It's about 
speaking to one another. It's about protests. It's about uh, gathering across aisles, across identities. It's about speaking truth to power and and understanding that there is power when we speak together. Um, And we are happy to say that after touring that production of Free Fred Brown uh, for three years, within those three years, there was a proposed rate hike that was going to happen from a utility company. And after every performance, we urged the public, please say something. Please go to what nobody wants to go to, which is the Public Service Commission meetings, and say something about how this impacts you, that even a couple of dollars every month can hurt so many families in Buffalo. That could be the difference between you having heat on this winter and not. And through the huge amount of testimony that the public now had, uh, they were able to stop that rate hike from happening. And it really shown that not only do the people have power, but art, artistic practice, theater has the ability to awaken something in people in order for them to understand their true power and bring them to action. It's more of a metaphor for just life mm-hmm. and the difficulties that one can have and how exactly a community can rally around something, rally around a cause, an idea, um, a shooting. Mm-hmm. And be able to affect real change. Right. How do you want to see this translate into the crisis that the community is facing today? Uh, As an artist and as someone who creates containers for art, um, art has been my preferred language. It has been what I wish to use to not only communicate, but paint pictures of the future. I think there is great strength and incredible things that can happen when you allow people to theorize less and dream more. Uh, I am hopeful that we, we as in the arts community here in Buffalo, can continue to create spaces where these quote-unquote uncomfortable conversations need to happen, that we showcase on our stages what is actually important to the community here in Buffalo, and that we create containers for folks to process that. How do we tell the stories that need to be told, not because we want to escape. Some people like to use theater or entertainment to escape from the reality, but to stare it directly in the face, to look at it at one time, at the same time. Those audience members that you are sitting next to are are looking and sharing the experience of that same story with you in real time. And the question that we always leave with audiences is, what do you do next? What do you, as a person in this community, do next? That is not the job of the artist to answer that question. We present you with a question. We present you with the reality, a snapshot of what the world is right now. 
and we say, what do you do next? Are you talking to white people? Are you talking to black and brown people? In terms of uh, the work that we're doing? Yeah. The cop-out answer is obviously we're talking to both. But depending on the piece itself, we have changed our audience based off of that and based off of the comfortability of the people telling the story. So sometimes it is the story of black and brown communities that we are presenting to just black and brown communities. If you happen to be a white person and experiencing that story, then congratulations. You've learned something. Uh, but sometimes it is the the healing comes from black and brown communities and members in that community being able to speak their truth to a community. And we largely leave that to the folks whose stories that comes from. Uh, for example, our first play of this last season, American Sun, was presented to an audience of both. It represented a story that many black mothers know of not hearing from your child who is a black man and not knowing where he went and thinking the worse. Uh, it is a story that many know that you can hear in the silences of that theater that they understood exactly what was happening, while at the same time sharing with our white brothers and sisters that this is the reality. This isn't, this isn't a, a fantasy story. This is exactly what we're going through. So what are you going to do about it? Don't feel bad. If you feel bad, that doesn't mean anything. There's no action to feeling bad. Your sympathy does not change that my child is gone, that my community members are gone. So if you feel bad, turn that into something. Make the art the catalyst for you to do something, to change the way this story is done, so that maybe the next time a story about American Sun is made, it's a story about revival, about resurgence, uh, about a rebirth of a nation. That is what I am hopeful that our work continues to do, is that we, we toggle this line of who do we speak to at that time, what is most important in terms of the audience who do we need to talk to who needs to do the work what do you think is next for buffalo what does buffalo need right now i think buffalo needs to not be shocked I think Buffalo needs to sit in the reality that so many communities have sat in. I think the idea of being shocked, um, of being thrown off by any event, whether that was the, the tragic events of the 14th or any events that happen in the future, if we sit in shock, we allow ourselves to kid ourselves that this isn't truly what Buffalo is. I think what Buffalo needs next is that we think strategically and structurally about how do we change the way our city is. For many people who have very little resources, 
we don't have time to do piecemeal things or have small actions. We have to think about how do we change the structures that allowed for this to happen. Thank you, Maria Ta, for just this inspiration. Um, it really is what people need to hear right now, that sympathy is great, action is better. Action is what is needed. I'd also like to thank our guest, Stephen Tucker, from Northland Workforce Training. We want to hear from you. You can use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app to leave us a message or send comments and questions via Twitter or email. We'll be back tomorrow to continue this multi-layered conversation with Miles Carter, who is on the ground providing an advocacy for Jefferson Avenue tops employees that's our promise to you here at wbfo and wbfo hd1 buffalo woln olean and wubj jamestown your npr station